If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So where's all those big bats that Eric Neander promised? And what will the Rays look like when there is uh, no shift, bigger bases, a lot of changes to Major League Baseball? This season, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about arbitration and everything else. Tampa Bay Rays with Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times, who covers the Rays for us here in just a minute. Baseball just a few weeks away. I can't wait. But first, we're going to discuss the Tampa Bay Rays and their search for an offensive coordinator to replace Byron Left, which it has begun in earnest. The names are coming out, and they are, I don't know, some you will recognize for sure. And we'll start with one that's very recognizable, Keenan McCardell, the wide receivers coach for the Minnesota Vikings. Of course, uh, McCardell was part of the Bucks Super Bowl 37 team, caught two touchdowns, two tutties in that game uh, against the Raiders uh, back in 2002. And he is among um, at least three candidates that will be interviewing for the Bucks offensive coordinator position. Uh, that list will include Broncos passing game coordinator and quarterbacks coach Clint Kubiak. And Jaguars passing game coordinator Jim Bob Cooter are both expected to meet with Tampa Bay as early as this week. Cooter will interview on Thursday, and the Bucks have asked for permission to talk to Kubiak, who is the son of Gary Kubiak, of course, former Texans and Denver Broncos head coach, uh, and that will take place uh, sometime after that. Um, the Bucks also asked to interview Texas or Texans offensive coordinator Pep Hamilton, he has declined, however, and, and of course they they didn't really have to ask permission. I think the the Texans allowed their coaches to go pursue other jobs when they fired Lovey Smith. Of course, they're waiting to hire a new head coach who will hire a new staff. Pep Hamilton's been around for a long time, Indianapolis Colts, uh, Stanford, a lot of years in the business. Um, he has two years remaining, I think, on his contract. In no hurry to be uh, a coach again, his son is a highly recruited high school quarterback in this in the city of Houston. So I think he's going to use uh, at least this time this year uh, to watch him play um, one of his final seasons of high school. So uh, mentioned McCardell, 53 years old, 17 seasons he played in the NFL. Incredible. Just two with the Bucks. He began coaching um, with the Washington football team at that time called the Redskins. He coached receivers at the University of Maryland. He's been a receivers coach really his whole coaching career with the Jaguars and then the Vikings. Uh, he's also part of uh, the Washington Super Bowl 26 championship team when he was a rookie. Cooter, you guys probably heard of, but not necessarily from Jacksonville, although he's done a nice job there. Uh, great name, by the way, Jim Bob Cooter, right? Um, he is somebody that uh, was in Detroit for a number of years with Matthew Stafford and had a lot of success up there. Um, with Stafford throwing the football, obviously. Um, last year, he oversaw the league's 10th-ranked passing attack. Um, the Jaguars um, also uh, began a pretty good development in his second year with quarterback Trevor Lawrence. Uh, Lawrence had uh, 4,113 yards and 25 touchdowns, just eight interceptions. And so it's a huge improvement over his rookie year and what Urban Meyer did to him. He also uh, had a 20-point comeback uh at halftime and won 31-30 against the Chargers in the AFC Wild Card game. Um, then you had, uh, you know, prior to that, he had been, as I mentioned, um, with Stafford and the Lions for 2016-2018. Kubiak, by the way, um, spent three years as a Vikings quarterback's coach and um, was an offensive coordinator there as well before he joined Nathaniel Hackett in Denver. And I, listen, I don't think you can blame him necessarily um, for the woes of Russell Wilson. I think that offense probably wasn't a good fit. Russ did not play well. On top of that, it was a disaster. They gave up way too much for him, and we'll see if, if he can be saved. But in his first year in Denver, he passed for just 3,524 yards, 16 touchdowns, 11 interceptions. The Broncos went 5-12. and 12, And as we remember, uh, Mr. Hackett, of course, was fired. So... Uh, I guess the uh, if there was some some sobering news, 
it was that uh, probably the Bucks' first pick would have been Bill O'Brien, and that was a guy that they were going to have try to get him to replace Byron Leftwich a year ago if Leftwich had gotten the Jaguars' head coaching job. O'Brien stayed at the University of Alabama a year ago. Now he's headed back to New England to be their offensive coordinator. Um, of course, he worked up there before and uh, was the quarterback's coach and then offensive coordinator with the Patriots from 2009-2011. Good friend of Jason Light's, obviously. If you were able to hire Bill O'Brien, you might have had a, a better opportunity to get Tom Brady back. That's not to say he won't come back uh, because – you know, because O'Brien's in New England, and I don't think he's going up there either. Um, but uh, that probably would have been uh, a lot of the people's first choices. And, um, you know, there's still six teams out there, six teams out there that are looking for offensive coordinators. Five others are looking for head coaches, which will then fill out their staff. So you got a lot of offensive quarter op- uh, coordinator openings and uh, very few, you know, I mean, there's never a shortage of candidates, but even in the case of these guys, um, you know, the, these are position coaches, primarily passing game coordinators, that sort of thing. And we'll see. We'll see if uh, Todd Bowles is impressed by them, Jason Light, the possibility they could hire one um, here coming up soon because there will be a run on these on these uh, positions pretty soon. And uh, the goal is to, of course, find somebody that can develop Kyle Trask in the case that Tom Brady doesn't come back. Uh, change the offense, make it more modern, more dynamic, um, emphasize probably more run game, that sort of thing. And um, we'll see if one of these guys can do that. But in, in the case of McCardo and others, uh, they have not really been in this position before, haven't called plays. So it'll be a bit of a projection in, in some instances. And, and that's not – I don't think this is the only guys we're going to see interviewed. I think there will be more as uh, the Bucks go to the Senior Bowl here in a week. And um, sometimes there's lots of interviews for that. And they have other positions to fill as well. So, um, you know, I, I think things are starting to move a little bit and that's a good thing on the Bucks coaching front. Uh, they have, you know, released or retired, um, nine coaches. So that's, a, that's a lot of, a lot of hiring you need to do to get back to, um, you know, your staff. I, and some of those positions won't be filled, uh, because there were, you know, some of the larger staff that, that, you know, Bruce Arians had assembled and some of them they'll, they'll view as, you know, as non-essential like Chris Bonio, for example, uh, who was a kicking coach. You don't typically have that on many, on many staffs. Usually it's just a, a special teams coordinator, which, which of course they still have. All right, Mark Topkin coming up in just a second, but first want to remind you guys of a way to save money on your electric bill. It's called May Electric Solar. They're a family-owned and operated business. They've been installing solar electric systems for a dozen years now. There's a lot of these fly-by-night companies, but May Electric Solar is committed to you for the long term. They guarantee their workmanship with a 30-year labor and services warranty. Plus, with every installation, you get $750 worth of surge protection for all your appliances. That is the May difference. If you visit their Hutchins showroom, May Electric uh, has all its products. They display those. They conduct on-site testing. You can see what they're going to install. Plus, this is important, they don't use subcontractors. All those guys up there on the roof uh, working are for Billy Mays guys. Uh, you can count on them. Start saving today. Call the solar energy experts. It's May Electric Solar. Here's the number, 727-819-2862. You can schedule a free estimate. Lori Electric Bill all year long. Preserve the quality of your appliances. That's May Electric Solar at 727-819-2862. All right, Mark Topkin, our baseball writer for the Tampa Times, joins us now, which means baseball can only be weeks away. That's the exciting news. But if there is news, it's no news. Mark, when we last left you, the Rays and Eric Neander in particular said they were going to go look for a bat. That was going to be the priority after scoring, what, one run in 24 innings in their playoff performance last fall and lo and behold they have not signed a said bat and maybe one isn't in the offing I don't know you wrote a story about it in the Tampa Bay Times and on tampabay.com and I just wanted to get your thoughts about your discussions uh, with the Rays and just you know what are the what are the chances that they can still do that and and I guess they'll be leaning heavily on guys that are coming back from last year yeah I think you're going to hear uh, the phrase breakthrough and bounce back a lot and, and that's what they are talking about the guys they have. And then there's a couple in each one of those categories I'll get to in a second, Rick. And, and there, there's some, I mean, the path they're, li- they're laying out is not an impossible one to see working, but it's certainly not the one 
that I think we all, you know, felt we were led to believe uh, after the season ended. And, and you know, Neander had the quote. And let me just, you know, read it to you here. He said, to sit here and to suggest that we're good as is and we'll just plan for better from our group next year would be unwise. Mm. So you've got one of the smartest teams in baseball, which typically doesn't say what it's trying to do, doesn't disclose its target list for the offseason, doesn't like to pin itself down to anything, coming out and saying it needs a hitter and saying it would be unwise to stand pat. And as the offseason went on, they were, you know, a little bit more public even in acknowledging, if, if not in direct quotes, but certainly getting the messaging out there publicly that, you know, they wanted a left-handed hitter. Uh, their numbers against lefty against right-handed pitching was down significantly. They wanted a guy with a track record. They wanted a guy with some been there, done that. And they wanted somebody to be impactful. I mean, they didn't want to make a move for the sake of make, making a move. So that was a pretty narrow group when you put the price element on it as well. Prices were crazy this offseason. There were a couple guys that they wanted. They were really interested in Michael Brantley. He didn't really seem to have any interest in leaving the Astros. He re-signed with them for $12 million with about 5 or $6 million, I think, in incentives. Then they kind of went around and, and talked to a bunch of guys, didn't really get any traction on somebody they liked. Then they made a late run at Brandon Belt. He ended up signing with the Jays for about $9 million or so. I'm, I'm not sure that I could see paying $9 million for Brandon Belt, but he did kind of fit their profile. But here we are, spring training's less than three weeks away. They didn't get any of those guys. They passed on a whole bunch of lesser guys. There were some guys signing for two and three and five and six million dollars that, you know, I don't know, Corey Dickerson, he was here before. Maybe he could have done something. He was a left-hand hitter with some pop. He signed for a couple million to go to the Nationals. You know, so I, they had some options and they declined to pursue them, Rick. So I think what you have to take out of that, and as I kind of wrote in the Times today, is you know they're basically telling you to trust them, that they tried, that they had a specific need, they couldn't find a way to fill it, they didn't want to just do something for doing it. They have some young guys and some hurt guys coming back that they think can be a lot better. And at this point, you know, they they were they scored 200 runs fewer in 2022 than in 2021. So they're trying wow. to make some of that up and they seem to think these guys are going to do it. So I think you're going to hear a lot of talk about Josh Lowe. You're going to hear mm -hmm. talk about Aranda, two guys that yep. had some opportunities last year. Lowe, probably a little less pressurized Aranda more toward the end of the year uh, and didn't click. And, and, you know, Lowe got a second chance, didn't click again. Aranda was more of a little bit of a shuttle, but uh, they're hoping one or both of those guys click in this year like Paredes did last year. He'd similarly been up and down with Detroit before he came here. Uh, and then you're going to hear a lot of talk about the bounce back guys. I mean, and there's some two pretty good ones in that category, Brandon Lau and Wander Franco. Yeah. They played 80-something games each. and uh, Sorry, Brandon played 60-something games. Uh, Wander played 80-something games. And yeah, if you want to be optimistic and say you could get the best out of both of those guys, you've got two pretty good hitters, a lefty and a switch hitter, that could make a pretty big impact. Yeah, and and listen, it's a long season and injuries are part of the deal. Uh, Franco in particular, you need to find a way to stay healthy. I think, you know, there was talk about his hamstrings. How did he train? I don't know if they've ironed all of that out. Obviously, he also had other injuries to the rest of the parts of his body. And Lau, when healthy, um, he hasn't done much in the postseason, but when healthy, I mean, look, this guy is, is their home run leader. I mean, he's he's where they get the big fly. And, Mark, when you talk about those 200 runs, I think that's what was missing, right? I mean, this team um, at one point a couple of years ago was, you know, fairly consistent in hitting home runs, and that they don't have that power, or at least didn't show it a year ago. And, and some of those guys aren't here anymore. I mean, Mike Zanino's gone. He actually signed yeah. for Cleveland. You know, he yeah. was a big part of that two years ago. They ranked in the top five in offense in 2021. You know, they yeah. got rid of Austin Meadows. He was a big part of it. But to their credit, mm -hmm. and I don't, I don't know that they knew this, so I'm not saying they were smart in doing it, but yeah. it did work out for them, was Isak mm -hmm. Paredes ended up hitting 20 homers, the guy they got for Austin Meadows. But right. Austin Meadows was a lefty hitter, and that's what they're looking for. So... You know, they, they kind of created the situation as far as what they had left. Obviously, losing Brandon Lau for, you know, two-thirds of the season was not something they would have foreseen happening. Right. You know, if he gets back to anywhere near his 33-homer pace that he had, or 33 homers that he had in 2021, 
that can be a big part of this. I know uh, Kevin Cash went down and saw Wander in the Dominican, made a quick trip down there a week or two ago, uh, and said he looked great, wow. looked you know really good in shape, looked ready to go. You know, was very encouraged by what he saw. Yeah, you know, he probably isn't going to tell us. Yeah, he was fat and out of shape, and I'm really upset with him. So we're going to take his word for it, right? But uh, he looked like a sports writer, Mark. What do you want me to say? You know, a there. Didn't recognize uh, him. Yeah. Yeah, so he, he seemed pretty excited about what he saw from Wander. Uh, they've gotten good reports on Brandon, but, you know, part of it, Rick, was some of the guys that were out there on the market, Michael Conforto didn't play at all last year because he was hurt. Bellinger was hurt yeah. for part of last year. So yeah. what they didn't want to do was put a chunk of money in for a guy that they had a, weren't sure on, that they had a gamble. It was going to be a bounce-back situation. So in essence, what Eric Neander said and what I wrote in the Times is, you know, they're, they're going to gamble. They want to gamble on their guys. and They don't want to clog the path, you know, and, and they're probably right. If either Josh Lowe or Aranda clicks and, and hits 300 or does 20 homers like they've shown at AAA, you know, that that can make a big difference. And you know, maybe one of those guys hits and one's just OK, you'll be all right. But it is interesting that they were very public in what they were looking for and then they didn't get mm-hmm. it. Well, as they say, that's baseball. I thought Aranda is a good contact guy. I like watching him play. Um, it, it's hard to come off the bench and be back and forth on the shuttle, as you say. So you know, if they're counting on him, maybe he gets his opportunity and runs with it. G-Man Choi is in Pittsburgh now, so that's a left-handed power bat that they had for a couple of years. I'm curious, who's going to play first base on this team? Well, that's another good question for the spring, and um, it, it's kind of all related. There was some discussion uh, at some point during this offseason of moving Brandon Lau over there, thinking maybe that yeah. makes it easier on his back. Um, mm-hmm. You know, without the shift this year, and, and every conversation, I feel like every discussion we have about baseball with the season starting has to be include the fact that, you know, they're not going to have the shift this year. So infielders have to be uh, more athletic. They have to cover more yep. ground. The second baseman is going to have a lot more work to do without that handy you know, the, the uh, security blanket of having somebody else playing short right field for him. Uh, that's going to change how first baseman and second baseman play. It's going to help mm-hmm. left-handed hitters get more uh, hits. The bases yeah. are a little bit bigger. Uh, the lim- right. pick it, pickoff throws are limited, so stealing of bases is going to be more in play. Having to cover second base is going to be more in play because more guys are going to be running. So mm-hmm. there's be a lot more athleticism. All that said... You know, I kind of got the idea of moving Brandon Lau over there. I don't know how bought in he would be. I don't, I don't know if he would or wouldn't. My my guess is he probably wouldn't think it was the greatest thing in the world. Right. But now I've heard they've, they're they kind of thinking something else up. And, and look, sure, if Aranda comes into camp and looks great, they could just say, go play first base and forget all this other stuff. But I think at this point you may see Yandy Diaz mm-hmm. slide over to first and then basically mm-hmm. bump the platoon that you would have had. You would have platooned at first with some combination of Paredes, Aranda, you know, maybe someone else in the mix. I'm not sure who it would be. But that would have kind of been your mix at first if Yandi stayed at third. Now you may see is Yandi may go over to first and then go with the younger, more athletic combination and platoon Paredes and Taylor Walls at third. Yeah. And Bruhan could be in that mix too. So, you know, depending on how that shakes out, I mean, Walls obviously the stronger glove, but it's got to show he can help offensively more than he did last year. But you may see Yandi as the primary first baseman. I'm not sure that that fits in with the idea that we just talked about. They're going to have to cover more ground and do more stuff. But that's what you could see happen. And, you know, like I said, there's still time. You know, Neander didn't rule it out. In fact, I'm a little curious because, you know, first base, outfield, DH. Those are the three spots where they could have added somebody. Part of the reason they didn't go for the right-handed hitter, and, and Evan Longoria certainly would have been one to at least talk about, was they felt like they had right-handers at all those positions. So. You know, as the spring goes on or the week go on leading up to spring training, you know, do they just decide whoever's left on the free agent market, righty or lefty, just bring someone else in to have some depth and see what happens? Or does a trade emerge? Is there a team that has that left-handed bat that maybe didn't plan on trading it that realizes, you know, teams kind of take, you know, kind of take account of what they have this time of year. And, you know, let's say you're Minnesota. You just spent all this money now that Correa's back. You need a little more pitching. You know, they've got yep. some left-handed bats. I, I don't know that Max Kepler is the answer, but maybe they right. come to the Rays and say, hey, we weren't going to trade Max Kepler, but now, you know, here we are. We need a pitcher in February. What do you have for us? And 
maybe that leads to something. Maybe there's a bigger name out there, and the Rays would talk about one of the five starters, the, you know, the guys that they're counting on. Or maybe Rasmussen or Springs could end up in a discussion. They could, the Rays could kind of get uncomfortably nudged into doing something with one of those guys for the right bat. So I don't think it's out of the question that they still make a move. You can do it now. You can do it during spring. They picked up two guys during spring last year. Paredes and Harold Ramirez ended up being two of their top five offensive players. So it's it's no time frame. There's no you know no deadline. Uh, and the other thing Neander mentioned, which is true too, is you know you could start the season. Let's say you know Ronda or or Josh Lowe look good in the spring, whichever one you want to pick, and and Franco and Brandon Lau look healthy. You know, start the season and, you know, see where you are at the end of April or the end of May or certainly June when you start getting into July and the trade deadline and then think, all right, our pitching's as good as we thought, but the offense still stinks. We got to go, you know, bite the bullet here, give up some good young players and go get a real hitter. Mark, what are the chances? And I've thought about this a while and I know that the Rays have too. Um, you know, they've always sort of been on the cutting edge of the analytics Um Certainly the shifts, the defensive positioning is a big, big part of what they've done in, in run prevention. Um, but along with that, if you take that away, right, and you have guys that don't strike out, I think they're probably trending that way of late, um, but you can move the baseball, and more importantly, defensively, you have great athletes. I mean, you look at their outfield, you look at the speed that they have out there, um, some really good gloves on the infield as well. Could it be that that you know the absence of the shift might actually favor a team like Tampa Bay? Well, look, I think certainly when you look at it, you know, for a first look at it, Rick, I would agree with you because they already have athletic infielders for the most part. Mm-hmm. They're already pretty smart in their positioning, so you'll assume that you know while the shift mandates that two infielders have to be on the dirt on either side of second base when the ball is pitched, right. there's right. some discussions that there's going to be some hacks to that. Um, I, I believe in your sport they call it the jet sweep. What's to say That's the right. shortstop couldn't get you a start run one start? place and you wind up somewhere else? Right. Yeah. He goes. The, the shortstop goes in motion. Yep. Wander Diaz yep. in motion to his left, <laughs> breaks across the base with a left-handed hitter up, and you know makes a diving catch. Uh, there's also been some uh, thought, and and you know, look, I I would feel better saying that this would be this would make more sense for them if they still had Kiermaier, but you know, Jose Siri's pretty fast. If you had a yeah. real dead pull left-handed batter up who never hits fly balls to left field, yeah, do you bring Manny Margot or whoever, or Randy Rosarena, whoever's, yeah, Randy, let's say, he used to be a second baseman supposedly back in the day, bring Randy over and make him that short fielder and mm-hmm. you know gamble that if the guy hits it off the end of the bat to left field, Siri can go run it down from center and play with that third outfielder as the guy in the shift. So there's yeah. still some things teams are going to think of and try to do and Look, if somebody's going to hack the system, the the inventors of the opener are probably going to be close to the top of that list, right? Yeah, no doubt. It'd just be like our softball games back in the day where you have to call your field or something. I don't know. Yeah, and then Tom um, Jones will hit it down the freaking third base line and get a double out. <laughs> that's right. Every time. Punch and Judy, a man. Thousand batting average on ground balls down the third base line. Punch and Judy. Me and you were just aiming for the treetops. That's all that mattered to us. We didn't care. Exactly. Um, exactly. Play wherever you want to. Hitting the ball over a two hundred foot fence is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, glory days indeed. Um, yeah. So, I mean, listen, you got to have faith in what they're doing. I suppose they've they've never, uh, you know, they've they've made themselves contenders every single year. We know the payroll limitations. We we know all of that. The one thing we can be pretty certain of, I think is that this pitching staff is going to be hard to navigate if you're a team going up against the four and really five starters um, that they have. And if they can stay healthy, which is always a big thing, a lot of their pitchers have not. Um, the big three, as they say, is pretty formidable. I mean, listen, I, I, I think there's still a lot of upside on these young guys, right? Um, McClanahan, um, you know, you, you assume that uh, everybody's going to come back healthy. So, I mean, you've been around for a while. How good are these top three pitchers on this on this starting staff? Well, I am not being a smart ass at all in asking you this, but who are you saying is the top three? Because I, I I'm not sure I know where. That well, Glass now. I mean, I would I would assume that it's that it's uh, McClanahan, Glass now, and obviously the guy the guy that they spent all the money on, Zach Eflin. Okay. Yeah, from, from I, I mean, I honestly, I I, not, I wasn't sure only because I know how well Springs did and how good Springs looked. 
I really wasn't yeah. sure. Like I said, maybe I I'm discounting him a bit. I just, I just yeah. feel like the guy's payroll is probably going to get him in there somehow. You mean just because they gave him the largest free agent contract in franchise history? <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, they yeah, tend look, to want to. They want to prove themselves right usually when GMs do that sort of thing. Oh, exactly, exactly. He will. I, I'm sure that Zach Eflin will face the weakest opposing starter. Uh, as many times as possible early in the year, so that that return on investment looks really good. That ROI is a lot better if he's five and one with a two something. Yeah, there you go. Starts instead of two and five, right? Even if he pitches right. just as well. So, yeah, look, I I think part of the reason to make that investment as they did and to do it early in the off season as they did, and by the way, as much as we all thought that was ridiculous money. Now go through and see what some guys got. And, oh, and wow, yeah. Taiwan Walker, who got a ton more yeah, than yeah. him. And some other guys, you're like, what? They, they got, I mean, they may have literally gotten, may, 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 because he has to stay healthy and he has to pitch a full season, but they may have gotten a heck of a bargain with what we all thought That's was crazy. a top expenditure. But, look, they, they've always been built on strong pitching. Um, you know, we saw Ryan Yarbrough kind of be the guy to patch through to be that fifth starter for them on and off for the last couple of years. I think they decided they needed to upgrade and, and try to have or see the opportunity to have a strong one through five. Uh, they feel like they have not now another one of Neander's phrases you're going to hear a lot in addition to the, the breakthrough and bounce back is, you know, look, you they are big on run prevention. So if using getting that fifth starter and that additional starter and having that strong one through five in front of the bullpen that they feel is going to be really good. He often says this, you only have to win by one. So, you know, if they can hold the other team down to three and they can score four, they can win. Whereas if they can't hold them down, they score four and they lose six to four and seven to four every night, it's not going to help them. So they feel pretty good about the depth of that rotation, but I, I will say this and, and, you know, this is not, based on anything but just, you know, common sense and observation and knowing how the Rays handle their pitchers. But each one of those guys is a little bit of an asterisk, right? I mean, Glass now made three starts look great at the end of last year, but he's his first year coming off Tommy John. You know, in parentheses, they've got a major investment in him for 2024 with that $25 million contract, so they're not going to take any risks this year. You know, he'll be handled a little bit cautiously. He'll have his innings limited to a certain degree. I don't think that means, you know, shutting him down or anything, but, you know, does he get a six-day, a fifth-day arrest and pitch on the sixth day once in a while? Does he maybe skip a start or something going into or coming out of the All-Star break? Things like that where they can pick up some extra rest for him. So he'll be handled a little carefully. McClanahan had the injured list with the shoulder last year, got the shot, said he felt great after. It was, was kind of hit and miss, though. Was, you know, maybe up until that playoff game, was there ever a time during the second half where you really thought he's fully back? I, I don't know. The playoff game was pretty good, but you've you got a little question there. Springs and Rasmussen both had really strong years, right? For the most part, pretty consistent, but neither had ever pitched that much before in the big league. So is there any kind of hangover effect? Is there any impact from that workload? Do they have to be built up a little more to make sure that, you know, they don't have too much stress on them after coming off that big workload and trying to take it on again? And then, look, the new guy, the big contract, Zach Eflin, has never had the big numbers over a full season uh the Rays love the strike throwing especially call him you know whereas the other guys are power he's more of an artist they've used that phrase before really you know locate super well uh new league new division opponents all kinds of things to factor in there so I, I think it's fair to say that rotation looks really really good amongst the best the Rays have ever had but also fair to say that there's going to be some questions uh at least a slight amount about each guy well, listen, it, it, we're going to talk baseball all year long, and, and it's not that far away with spring training opening up. There's still uh, lots of uh, things that could happen, as you mentioned, and, and we'll just have to see how the Rays navigate uh, this spring training and, and uh, on into the season, and they've always found a way to do it. I'm fascinated by the ex bigger bases. I'm fascinated by the lack of shifts. I think it's going to be a different game uh, and not necessarily one that's not more entertaining. I, I, um, I'm one, you know, very old school, but I like to see the ball in play. I, I just have gotten um, a little tired of the strikeout home run thing, but we'll see if that changes. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Meanwhile, a uh, little thing called the Baseball Hall of Fame occurred on Tuesday. And, of course, you have been a voter for years and years. Only one player uh, in the modern era here. Uh, of course, we know that Fred McGriff is going in as well. Scott Rowland was uh, the one player who uh, received enough votes uh, to, to make the hall. He got by with five more than the 292 that was needed. And, Mark, you wrote a column about this in the Tampa Bay Times and on TampaBay.com. You know, I'm one that any Hall of Fame, I think you should be just that. You should be, you should be a, 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 a special player and beyond special. You should be one of those that, you know, it's not like, it's not like everybody's, you know, you say their name and they're a Hall of Famer. I don't, I don't subscribe to that. But I do believe that it's supposed to be a, a, you know, an elite club, if you will. So I don't have a problem necessarily with – some years there not being very many players. There have been years where there were probably no players. Um, you voted for Scott Rowland. Uh, let's talk about your ballot. But you don't necessarily think that bigger is better, that, that maybe maybe some years this is what it should be, that uh, uh, that you don't have a list of guys that you just assume or, or believe should just go right into the Hall of Fame because there's not that many players eligible that you would vote for the first time around. Yeah, and, and you know it's something that's evolved, Rick. And I, I did kind of detail it in the in the Times for uh, Wednesday's Times and, and online. But it, it's just evolved, and, and I'm as guilt. I, I, everything I wrote, I'm saying like, I'm guilty of doing this. But there were guys that you know, they, I don't know if I really, truly, in my heart, felt like they were Hall of Famers, the elite of the elite. I know it's like the upper one point one percent of guys who've ever played have gotten in, and that's that's a pretty small amount. But maybe that's too much. I, I don't know. It just felt like. There were some people that, you know, when you break it down and sometimes you can do it quickly and you, you, you know, you've seen them play enough and you know the numbers, sometimes you have to do some pretty intensive research, but you break it down and you're like, well, we're putting, like I'm putting Rick in because his story was almost as good as John's and John's story was almost as good as Tom's. And like, mm. you're, you're making this like connection as opposed to should right. Rick be in the hall of fame or not based on his career. Is he in right. really the upper elite of the elite of the elite which is what you're basically mm-hmm. saying and and i feel like maybe you know and, and there's some guys like i i flip-flopped in the 10th year on edgar martinez i flip-flopped in the 10th year on tim Raines. like and and part of that is i'd like to give myself a little bit of credit for being open-minded to discussions with other uh voting yeah. people with other writers to looking at stats new stats new ways to look at stats right new, ways to new presentations all that. I mean, yeah i think all that's mm-hmm. fair game i think to say you decided the first year this guy's not going to make it and then never give it another thought and just vote no for 10 years, that's not the right no, way to do it. Wrong. You have to be open yeah. to this. And mm-hmm. So having said all that, I, I feel like, you know, in those two guys' cases specifically, and I mentioned this in the article, I, I think I just kind of went along with the ground, you know, the crew. Like, you know, he's, he's, he's probably going to get in and, he's, you know, he really did have a good career. And if you look at it, I mean, it's, it's pretty, he's really pretty good. But it's not the Hall of Pretty Good. It's not the Hall mm-hmm. of Very Good. and. Right. You know, I, I feel like maybe, you know, I, I probably, you know, like I said, this evolved. I used to think bigger is better. Now I think smaller is better. It may change again. I was watching the MLB Network show after the announcement Tuesday night. And here's, you know, other writers, guys who have been doing it longer than me, who I respect immensely saying, you know, we're, we're the voters are too hard. We should have more people getting in. But, you know, a couple of those guys were sitting in Cooperstown doing their live hits on MLB Network. If no one's getting in, <laughs> you know, we all we all kind of buy into this. Right. I mean. Look, I, I may, I may, I don't know yet. I may get the chance to go to Cooperstown and cover Fred McGriff's induction this July. I've had the privilege to go twice before for Wade Boggs and Tony Larusa. It's a, it's a magical weekend. It's just, you know, you literally see the the Hall of Fame come to life. They're all there. I mean, it's it's an amazing experience. And you know, maybe as media, we get caught up in wanting, you know, a local guy makes it, you get to write about him. You know, guy you covered makes it, you get to write about him. Somebody you know, that, you know, whatever it is, I mean, it creates copy, it creates content. We're talking about it on you know, your uh, podcast here, but you know, that's none of those are the reasons to vote people in. It's ultimately, are they among the best who've ever played? And then I think maybe, 
you know, we've been a little too generous at times. You know, I don't know either, too. And, of course, the Rays haven't been around that long. But I don't know sometimes if there's not a regional bias. I mean, you know some of the bigger media markets, uh, players get a lot more attention. Um, you know, the other thing that happens, and even with Roland, like when he was first eligible, and this happens in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, too. It's like, well, you know um, – first time around this guy didn't make the 25 or he didn't make the 15 or if he did make the 15 right. he didn't make it to exactly. 10 and 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 you know it, it takes a number of years it's like well why you know if he could only get five percent of the vote as maybe Roland did his first time how, how is it that several years later now he's a hall of famer and I would say well who else was in the room you know I mean it, it just there are some guys that are going to trump other players uh, until they get through there is a cue so to speak that has to occur over time as players become eligible and even as players begin to lose some of their eligibility, um, that's going to happen. So I don't think anyone should apologize for that. Um, but I, I kind of agree with you. I mean, I listen, I mean, the Hall of Fame, you know, in, in, in uh, with the Pro Football Hall of Fame, yeah. it, it, it's always five. You know, it's, it's five right. plus a contributor plus a senior guy. Some years – I don't know that there is five. Right, right, <laughs> I'll be honest right. with you, you know. And there's only three hundred and seventy something odd guys in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Um, yeah. So yeah. So it's 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 a great honor, right? But when when do you give it, right? Right. Exactly. Timing is part of it, and and that is, you know, and and you have to reward, um, I think, a player who is consistently back in consideration every year, and people do bring new arguments to the table, and and your view of baseball changes too. Um, you know, when did the guy play? How has the game changed? You know, if he played today, like there's, there's any number of ways of chopping it up. Um, what made you think that, uh, that, that you admire Roland's career enough to, to vote for him to go into the hall of fame? Well, yeah, here's one of the things. And, and I, I didn't actually have the exact numbers on this until, you know, I looked it up more recently, but it always thought, struck me was he was a really good third baseman. And there's not a lot of guys that are really good third baseman, right? Mm-hmm. And there's, there's certain, you know, we, Brooks Robinson's a pretty good one. I mean, there's, sure. there's obviously some, but you, you don't often hear of third baseman that you marvel about their defense. Scott Rowland won eight gold gloves, but here's the catch, Rick, and and I can say this as someone who's of this uh, size here. He's six four, two. Wow. And he played at two hundred and forty five pounds. Wow, watch, I didn't realize he's two forty five. Highlights. There, there's one clip they've been playing all day today where he makes this incredible like diving play across the line, like. He's 6'4", 245. I mean, Evan Longoria is really good. Evan Longoria is nowhere near that big. So Scott Rowland right. was really good. He was a guy who worked his way into that. He told some stories today of even just here in Clearwater in his first couple of big league camps of, with John Vukovic, the great instructor for the Phillies yeah. who's passed away a number of years ago. But uh, of just the drills he would put him through to basically make him a big league player. And, and you know, Scott Rowland's a guy, you know, proud Midwesterner, pride of Jasper, Indiana, as he mentioned on his call tonight. But he just did everything he had to do to make himself a big leaguer, became a incredibly clutch hitter, a, a good hitter, not not an overwhelming hitter, not an overwhelming power hitter, not an overwhelming average, but a very clutch hitter, very dependable player, a gritty player, a leader, but also an incredible defensive player. So you, you kind of use the phrase like all around, multi-talented, but mm-hmm. you know, but but I'll be honest again, you know, if you were, you know, if you just sit here and say who are the best third baseman ever, he's the 18th third baseman to go in the Hall of Fame. You know, he's not going to be in your your top handful that you're going to name. So, you know, he he is a Hall of Famer, but I don't know if how far over that bar that we were just talking about he is. I mean, and yeah. You know, the fact that somebody got elected, nobody was elected 2 years ago. Last year David right, Ortiz was, right. so you would have had, you know, kind of shutouts in a two two out of 3 year period. You know, mm-hmm. and the hall doesn't like that. It's not good for business. Uh, the no, media doesn't no, like it's it not. because you know it's not good for business. But ultimately, you know, if you're doing this right, the decision is truly based on the player and his career. You also are clearly a homer because you voted again uh, in your three votes this time for Gary Sheffield and Billy Wagner, both with <laughs> Tampa Bay roots. Listen, I think Sheffield's a Hall of Fame player. Five hundred nine home runs, uh, just one of the most feared hitters of his time. Right, um, and and seem to have done it the right way. And Billy Wagner, really, four hundred and twenty-two saves. Look, Rick. Some people don't like voting for relievers. There's a columnist at a certain newspaper you work for who doesn't vote for relievers for the Hall of Fame, and and he's not alone that thinking they don't belong. I, I've come around on that. I voted for Lee Smith. I voted for some other guys. I've been voting for Billy Wagner every year. 
Look at what he can do. Look at the strikeouts. Look at the, you know, whip, walks and hits, parading pitch. Look at the saves. I mean, he's done so many things. He has had such an impact. Uh, I certainly think he belongs, and he had a hefty rise. He's going to be close. Uh, Todd Helton should be close next year. Uh, Andre Jones should be close next year. They all made nice jumps this year. Yeah. Gary Sheffield made a good jump, about 14.5%, but he's still about 20% short, and he's hmm. heading into his last year. So I, I I don't know what happens with Gary Sheffield, Rick. I mean, he had a little bit of that kind of odd incident. He was, Remember, he was training with Barry Bonds, and they used the cream and the clear, and Sheffield said he didn't know what it was, and Bonds kind of later indicated that Bonds, he, Bonds, did know what it was, and it was during the Balco steroid era. But it was before, you know, it was technically illegal. Bonds never got suspended for it. But, you know, Sheffield was maybe, you know, well, he was tainted by that. He obviously, you know, early in his career, throwing the ball in the stands, some attitude issues. He played for eight teams. But go ask a pitcher who faced Gary Sheffield and many others who was the most hitter he feared the most. Who did he, some, some guys literally will tell you they were scared when Gary would start swinging his bat warming up. Just knowing what you know, he was with fierceness. He was going to unleash upon them if he got a hold of the ball. And five hundred nine homers is going to help. I don't know that he's going to make the jump with the writer vote for next year. There's some other guys coming on the ballot. Maybe Gary ends up down the path where Fred McGriff went, and he gets evaluated differently and better uh, by the. It used to be called the Veterans Committee. Now it's called the Contemporary Era Committee. You know, Fred McGriff in his last year on the writer's ballot, got 39.8% of the vote. Before that, he'd never gotten higher than 24%. So the writers kind of whiffed on Fred McGriff. Yeah. And the this veterans-type committee put him in unanimously. So, you know, that partially ex-players, some baseball officials, and some media people, but obviously a different mix. Maybe mm-hmm. Gary Sheffield has a better outcome there. But, yeah, call me a homer if you want. And I hear we are talking about a small <laughs> hall, but... I think Gary Sheffield uh, could definitely justifiably have a place in Cooperstown. Yeah, no, I, I agree with both those picks. Actually, I don't, I don't care what John Romano thinks. <laughs> I don't mind naming him either. Uh, but hey, uh, that's just me. Listen, I got two mailbag questions, and we'll let you go. This is great. Uh, we're talking to Mark Tompkin, of course, of the Tampa Bay Times. All right, this is from a guy uh, who is a Kentucky oil guy. Is his handle, I guess, on Twitter. He writes this. Wanted to get your thoughts on the Rays arbitration situation. My understanding is they had 14 total. Now, if these numbers are wrong, you can correct them, uh, which is an extremely high number. And now they're down to seven cases going to hearing. It seems absolutely ridiculous. Again, a number I don't know. That for less than $3 million, they're willing to go to arbitration. And more importantly, the quality of players of the seven. This is bad look to me. The team is trying to get a stadium deal done. Has spent essentially nothing in free agencies besides Eflin. Thoughts and thanks again. Well, his, his research is right, so I'm going to assume he read the okay, Tampa Bay good. Times correctly. <laughs> he read what, what Christy Ackert wrote when I was off and what I wrote about this all over the last couple of weeks. But they did have 14. They did settle seven. They are going to go to hearings with seven. It's the third most any team's ever gone to hearings with in the 20, 30, whatever it is, 30, 40 years of this process. Uh, it is for a sum. The sum total of all the differences is $2.85 million. Now, the way the process works, though, they don't necessarily know that at the time. I mean, this would be, let's say you were going to sell me one of those fancy sports cars you have in your giant garage, your Jay Leno S garage at your palace. Yeah. So you offer, I offer, you offer, I offer. We're going back and forth. So we both kind of know where each other is. We say, you know what? We're going to go to arbitration, submit your offer. But I don't know what you're going to submit. You don't know what I'm going to submit because you may have told me I'm not coming down under $100,000 no matter what. And then, but you want to win this case and the arbitrator has to pick one or the other. And I've been trying to get you to do it for 60,000 or 70,000. So after you tell me you'll never come under a hundred, no matter what, you might submit at 90. And I came up a little bit and I submitted at 80. So if we would have known we were really only $10,000 apart, not 40,000 apart, we probably would have said, let's do a deal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But they, they don't know when they're submitting. So you know, Eric Neander's quotes were that everyone negotiated in good faith. So you, you know, assume he's saying that for a reason, but it's a weird process because you, you end up arguing and negotiating for what you want to get. But then when you submit your figures, it's kind of a blind, you know, sealed bid kind of thing. Now you're changing it because now your strategy is to have the arbitrator pick your number, not to get the number you thought you wanted to get to. You just want to win. You don't want to lose. Right. So it's a weird so, process. Do I, I? I agree with your your Kentucky oil investor here that 
Yeah, I mean, if you knew for the three million dollars, they're gonna they'll blow that on a player who gets hurt this year. I don't know who it is, but somebody will get three million dollars and hardly play this year. It happens every year to every team, just about. But you know, it, it it's just an unfortunate process. It's a little untoward too. It is. It's not a good process because you know they'll hire lawyers. They won't have the team officials do it. If they don't want it to be coming out of their mouths, but they'll hire lawyers and people to work these cases for them. And a lot of times the players go to the hearing and they'll sit there and say, yeah, well, I mean, th- how are you going to make a case like against Jeffrey Springs this year, right? The guy bailed yeah. your butt out. He went from the bullpen of the rotation. He was one of your best starters. He dealt with a little personal thing with a, the issue with his newborn son and hospitalization and flying back and forth for like two weeks and all these things he did for you. How are you going to go in there and argue that he's not worth the extra seven, $800,000 he's asking? But Arbitration is based on comps. The panel is only supposed to look at what's, you know, the data presented to them from this past season. Uh, and, you know, they'll make a case saying other guys who were at that level of their career and did that much in their game, you know, only made this much. And that's why we're not, we didn't want to go any higher. So it, it's n- nobody really wins, I guess, is ultimately what I'm yeah, saying. So I, yeah. I agree with your guy in that regard, but it's also part of the way the game works. And, you know, you submit these bids blindly, you don't know what you're up against. To be clear, because I'm not real keen on the arbitration process, so the, does the arbitrator have to pick one or the other, or can yep. he uh, negotiate this in between? Can nope. he just say, we're going to split the middle? Nope. No, there, once you go to the hearing, the arbitrator picks one or the other, even if there was like the most obvious compromise in the world. Now, I will say this. The Rays, and they are one of – they've been doing this for a while. There's a number of teams who also do this, so maybe it's half. I'm not sure exactly. But they stop negotiating once the figures are exchanged. They're, it's basically called a file and trial process, a file and trial team. Once you file, you're going to the hearing. Yeah. Other teams keep that window open and, and have the ability to then see what those numbers are. I mean, they're $125,000, I think it is, apart with Colin Pochet. I guarantee you it costs almost that much to stage a hearing and hire the lawyers. And do all sure, the absolutely. Yeah. They get a break this year. The, the hearings rotate between Arizona and Florida every year, so they're actually in St. Pete this year. But otherwise, <laughs> I mean, no joke. They would have had to put, you know, four people up in a hotel for three days also. I mean, in airfare yeah, and stuff. Yeah. So they would definitely would have split that. But I heard Eric Neander uh, explain this to Neil Solance on Neil's podcast that, their philosophy is there has to be a deadline because if there isn't, you'll never actually get to the end of the process. And he, he used True. the phrase, you have to just put the pencils down at some point. So they decided they will stick to their philosophy of once you you file, you're done. Now, they, they'll make an exception to do a multi-year deal. So they give themselves a tad of wiggle room there. But mm-hmm. in theory, they can't call Colin Pochet up and say, look, we're 125000 apart. Let's just split it down the middle for 62500 each and be done with this. They don't do yeah. that, so they have to go to the hearing, and yes, the arbitrator has to pick one or the other. They can't suggest a compromise. If only we had arbitration at the Tampa Bay Times, it would have been interesting. Um, let's uh, <laughs> let, let's talk. Here's another question. This is from a guy named Kenny. Uh, by the way, I don't know that there's any oil in Kentucky. That's just his name. I I, I, okay. I might have I learned something. You had a little side investment. I might have learned something tonight. I'll have to research that. I'm, now I'm going to get a bunch of emails about uh, oil in Kentucky. Kenny writes, what do you guys think about Kevin Kiermaier rocking the Maple Leafs jersey now that he's in Toronto? Just goes to show you, sports are really a business. You know what? I I, I felt – I <laughs> okay, this is me sounding sincere, but it's hard to be sincere. Like, I felt bad retweeting that because <laughs> I, I – Now you do. I, but I did it anyway, right? Yeah, right, right. Because a bunch Felt of people, bad until you hit send. people commented on it. Look, I, this isn't the clickbait. We don't get paid for <laughs> no. or anything. But it was fun, enjoyable, interesting to see what the reaction would be. Kevin Kiermaier is a major Lightning fan. Yeah. Honestly, I think outside of the Rays and Purdue basketball, he probably liked Tampa Bay Lightning as like his third favorite team. Like He loves going to those <laughs> games. He lives you know, in Tampa. He goes to the games. He knows some of the guys. Uh, but he went up the may, uh, the blue Jays still do what the Rays used to do, but like a caravan, they go actually all around Canada right. for like a couple days. And so they did their last big weekend was actually in Toronto. So they had like six players, including Vladdy Guerrero came up from the Dominican Republic, mm. come up and do a bunch of public appearances for like two or three days. Kiermaier was one of those guys they picked. He was up there. 
one of the events they did was go to a Maple Leafs game. They put them all in a suite. They put them all in Maple Leafs jerseys. They introduced them all, you know, between periods. They waved to the crowd. There may have been something else they did with the fans. What what, what was he supposed to do? Like, not put the Maple Leafs jersey on? They, then he would have been ostracized in Canada, oh. right? So, oh, and how? I, I, yeah. I do feel bad because I know there were, I saw, I had some Twitter comments along the lines of what your, your letter, your emailer asked. You know, like, how could he do this? He's such a fraud. He's supposed to be like, he... I'm sure if he's back here this week, he might be at the Lightning game tonight, or Tuesday night, Thursday, whatever they ever they play. Like, oh, yeah. he's but he had to do it. But yes, it did look weird. And there was, you know, the pictures of him in the Jays jersey and hugging Vladdy, and you know, on his Zoom call when he signed with them, he, you know, he, look, he was being very honest. He said, "I look forward to being a Blue Jay and whipping up on the Rays." I mean, he 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 is. He should. He's on a one year deal. He's he needs to do that. He needs to have a good year, but. Yeah, I felt bad. It looked bad. It wasn't really anything he could do about it. Well, like all of us, we're loyal to the person that pays our paycheck. And as they say, Mark, it's not show friends, it's show business. And I just, you know. There you go. Business is good for Kevin Kiermaier. was happy he got what he got, and they're going to play him as a starter. And uh, it's going to be fun uh, in the Trop and, and in Toronto for about 19 games. So. And he's just a good team. It's a good team. I mean, he's. Really good. I, I You know, as we sit here today, if we are going to pick AL East, I might. You know, maybe I'm picking Jays, Yankees, Rays at this point, and he's joining a good team and filling a. I mean, they need somebody like him. Their outfield defense is going to be really good in front of a behind a pretty good pitching staff, and in a stadium, they can bash walls in. They're moving their walls in too, so it's going to be. Are they really? That's not even fair. Holy cow! And talk about a team that's not going to have going to take advantage of the shift. They hit the ball pretty hard everywhere. So I don't think I don't think Vladdy Guerrero is really worried about this shift thing. If he even no, cares. no, the two hundred. Yeah, moving the fences in though would be nice for him for sure. Yep. Well, it's going to be exciting. Uh, baseball is here. It's our favorite sport. It's my favorite sport. I don't care that I've covered the NFL. Mark knows this, and we get to talk to Mark Tompkins throughout the season and uh, spring training now in Orlando. How about that? couple trips over to mickey mouse every now and then but uh we'll be checking in with you from time to time marco thanks buddy anytime rick you got it man it's great to be talking baseball with mark again uh the lightning of course they beat minnesota three to two as they continue their home winning streak i think it's up to 10 games now um we're going to have a chance to do our mailbag segment tomorrow so we did a couple questions tonight some of you have submitted those already here's how you do it uh go on twitter at sports day tb Submit your question. We'll read it on the podcast. Answer it 100% correctly. You can reach me on Twitter at NFL Stroud, or you can send it. My email address is rstroud at tampabay.com. For Steve Verstick and Mark Tompkins, I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times. Have a great day, everybody. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.